So this morning we're going to talk about a very, uh, well, I can make jokes about it, but you know, needless to say, Presbyterians and Baptists have a lot of fun conversations about free will. And uh, we will try not to endeavor to get into all of those interesting conversations, uh, but we will try and assert a few basic uh, comforting things, but also warnings nonetheless. So we're going to start, I'm going to start, go ahead, uh, read a little bit more. I'm going to read verses 20 through 25 of chapter 1. This morning I'll be reading in the NIV because I have no idea where my ESV Bible is. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that all are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts became, were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual impurities, and degraded their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is not always immediately comforting. Sometimes it is challenging. Lord, sometimes it takes us time to simply rest in your spirit and have it wash over us. Lord, we ask that in all things, we might trust your spirit to lead us, to encourage us, and particularly in the preaching of your word, to protect and to guard your word. Whatever is said this morning, may it be useful and true for the building up of your people, and whatever is not true, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So uh, if you've ever carried a child over a uh, wiggly bridge, uh, perhaps uh, a rope bridge or something that was you know, just above the water enough, uh, but wiggly enough that you realized at that age and in that season, it would be unwise for them to walk that bridge on their own. And so you carry them across the bridge, but the child becomes convinced that they have the ability to walk across this bridge and that they will not be seduced at looking over into the water too far and fall in. And you have this moment as a parent as to whether or not you give in to their free will or you hold on to them and despite their free will, bring them safely over to the other side. Now, in my parenting style, it all depends on how far the water is. If it's pretty close, then I'm going to let them enjoy the full reality of their free will. And if they fall into the water, that is something of a potential lesson to learn that always the exercise of my free will may or may not be the wisest thing to do. My parents might actually understand not that they doubt me, not that they think that I am a horrible child, but that they know enough to know more than I do, at least when it comes to walking across a wickety, a wickety, 
rickety, rickety old bridge. There is a reality that as we try and understand the infinite challenge of a supreme and all-knowing God who wrote the beginning, the middle, and the end before it started, and in the same breath talk about a God who does respect free will and created us in his image to be those who could wrestle with real decisions, not false decisions, not pretending like they're decisions, but actual decisions that have an impact not only in our moment-to-moment, but eternity, is a struggle. We can't fit these things in our minds. Interestingly enough, Jewish folks didn't really try to. And it's why the Bible is often frustrating, because in one passage it will seem like it's talking about free will as if it's the only thing that matters, and then several passages later it will talk about the sovereignty of God as if that's the only thing that can matter. And human beings, particularly this side of the Enlightenment, want to know which one's the most important. We've got to arrange things in alphabetical order or numerical order of importance. Not sure the Bible cares. Uh, It just says both are true. And in any given moment, what we're called to do is act in faith. Faith that I can make a decision, that I'm not a robot. Faith that I have a God who will catch me and get me out of that little stream, even if I do fall off the rickety bridge, when he lets me exercise the limitations of my knowledge, and I find myself in a predicament. We simply live in faith that these truths are real. And so when Paul warns us and is guiding us through what it means to understand, and again, in this section, Paul is not singling out pagans. We know that everything he just said about those people whose hearts are darkened, you read the prophets, you read the history of Israel, God's people do it as much as pagans. He's going to later in this passage separate the difference between what the Greeks do and what the Jewish folks do. But right now, this is a universal proclamation about the human condition and its pathological need to deny the reality of God. Three points. There is the significance and centrality of the heart, which we've talked about before, so I won't need to talk about it much. There is the impact of the heart on the mind in verse 22. And finally, there is verses 24, 26, and 28, which we didn't read, where God gives them up. That is to say, and we're going to unpack what that means for God to give us over to our own wisdom. So, a reminder on hearts hearts are a uh, For the Jewish folks, for the Bible, it's the center of our being. For the Greek mindset, it is, if I think certain things, I can change my heart. Uh, For the Bible, not really wanting you to, to get into a fight between the Greek and the Jewish worldview, but at least in Scripture, for a biblical sense of the center of a human being, it's always for the Bible, the heart. And what I say loosely is, when I know what you love, I can tell you what you'll do. That is to say that what we love, apart from who Christ is, makes us incredibly predictable in our actions. Because, quite frankly, sin is, although packaged in a way that is exciting, is incredibly boring and predictable. Right? It, is, it has to be wrapped in wonderful, beautiful paper, 
and shiny objects because the actual content of sin is rather repetitive. And so if your job, if your, if your heart's love is to feel financial security, I'll tell you how generous you're likely to be. I'll tell you how likely you're, you're, how hard you are to work, what kind of things that you are likely to spend your money on and not spend your money on. And I'm going to be, and anybody else could be, roughly 70, 75% right. If you need to be loved and appreciated, there are certain ways in which you're inclined, as personality types go, to quote-unquote be a pleaser. And that has its own positive and negatives, but I can tell you how you're likely going to react to somebody's criticism of you, to not being included in a group. Fill in the blank. It's not that when we love other things other than God, everything we do is inherently deeply evil. It is, however, driven by a need that is insufficient uh, to, to fill the, the, the hole that only God can fill. It's, a, it's an attempt to use something to fill our need for love that, quite frankly, it'll never utilize. The, so, again, we could go through a lot of examples, but the first thing Paul wants us to understand is that our hearts regularly love things other than God. And if you look at the history of the church, whether it's the early church, the middle church, our current church, the church in Africa, the church in the United States, we will find things that tempt the church to love things other than God. And that will dictate and direct how we read the Bible. It affects our mind, verse 24. We will read the Bible in ways that fit with our greatest loves. Now, in our time, in our place, some of the great temptations for the church are, of course, always good things. Things that the Bible extols as being gifts of God and virtues when put in their right context. But we are likely to have our minds become increasingly foolish, that is, things that do not line up with the eternal truths of God, as we follow our hearts and our greatest loves. So I alluded last week or made a point about, you know, that that there are great commitments in our culture and society to family, family safety, and being self-sufficient. And when we value, which are present in Scripture, personal responsibility with wealth, the joys of having a family, the, uh, the privileges and joys of owning property, all of those things, but if they become the cart before the horse, we can find ourselves less likely to read certain passages of Scripture as weighty. So, for example, we may be inclined to read Jesus' parable to the workers in the field where the owner says to those who are complaining about what he pays his workers, isn't it mine, and can't I do with it what I want, and put great emphasis on that text, but be a little less emphasizing of a text where Jesus says, give everything up, everything you have, and come and follow me. So, we know that universally everybody has a right to their property and do what they want. We know universally that most of us are not called to give up everything we have and follow Jesus. 
I don't know exegetically how we make the distinction between those two texts, but we assume certain things. Now, what if part of that is because of what we love that's a little different than Jesus? What if I'm inclined to make certain decisions uh, based on things that the world says, if you have this, you will be secure, you will be comfortable, you will have significance and safety outside of your reliance upon who Christ is. And in a Christian mind, those things should not be in conflict. And when we find ourselves increasingly feeling like we're going to have to choose between the stuff of this world and Jesus, we may find that our hearts are divided. That we are not as, as at peace with what it means to have faith in God. And so that in hindsight, a generation or two later, it is just absolutely mind-boggling to imagine that you would count somebody as three-fifths of a person so that you could maintain both your ownership of that person and enough political capital to be able to hold enough votes in the House and Congress. And we look at that, we go, my stars, that cannot have been rational thought. And yet, as G.K. Chesterton points out, uh, don't argue with a madman. Because his reason is always faster than yours because the only thing he has is reason. He has no other emotions. There is nothing else in his world except for his own system of thought. And that will always rationalize his ends and his goals, regardless of any world outside or around him. And that's how what can seem like really good and clear thinking that logically follows becomes foolishness because the heart no longer is pursuing Christ it begins to pursue those things we believe which will give us significance, health, and security, and in so doing, our reasoning becomes logical and consistent and foolish. And Scripture regularly wrestles against that, pointing us back to the reality of who Christ is. And in the midst of that, then God says He will at times give us up to our own logic to our own foolish ends and allow us to feel the weight of our own logical presuppositions and logical thought and allow it to go further out towards its logical, consistent conclusion. And in those times, we find that we have flung ourselves out of the arms of our Father and been unable to navigate the difficulties of balance in a world which we can actually control and therefore we fall off the bridge and into the river. Now the question then comes, does this mean that God is in here being punitive in punishment? And this is really important. This is where I want to take the last bit of my time this morning, is that we must be clear that what God's justice is, is not primarily punitive. Somehow or another, we think judgment is fundamentally punitive. It is a challenge, even our own legal system, is that we just want people to do, if you do the crime, do the time. And we haven't really unpacked do justice and love mercy. What does restorative justice look like? What does justice that is meant to absolutely point to the wrongdoing and the evil of an act, but in such a way that allows for redemption and restoration. And that God's justice here 
for humanity, certainly for his people, but then as he expands the uh, gospel to all creation, and Paul takes it to even the city of Rome, Paul is not telling this stuff so that he can sit back like Jonah, waiting for the city to burn and God's punitive justice to burn the whole city. The whole point of God sending Jonah was that he wanted them to know the consequences of their actions in order that the knowledge of justice would drive them to repentance. Because God's justice has at its deep core a desire for restoration. He cannot compromise the nature and character of who he is, but he reveals it and sometimes allows us to feel what happens when we rebel against it in order that we might know him and trust and put our faith, not in our own righteousness, but in his. The justice of God, as it is poured out and people feel the logical consequences of their actions, individually and corporately, when we feel the weight of what happens when we are driven by fear and need and security and a desire to be loved, desire to be uh, powerful, a desire to be in control, when we allow those things to dictate our decisions, when our heart longs for them more than they long for Jesus, there is a certain reality of foolishness that will come to rest. And for some folks, they rarely see the consequences. And for others of us, it feels like every time we move sideways just a little bit, God's right there and we feel the weight. I can't explain the way or the rationale of the way God reveals or the way God allows us to feel the weight of our sin when he allows justice to begin to invade our sense of self-righteousness. But it is for mercy's sake that justice is revealed. Micah is not just riffing off of something new or throwing out a platitude. There has to be something different than our notion of punitive justice for Micah to say, do justice and love mercy, as if in our minds those are probably mutually exclusive things. But as Paul unpacks them in Romans 1, to do justice and to love mercy is to hone those two things together because I won't know what mercy is without a recognition of justice, and justice has no context, no ultimate redemptive purpose, all of this is futile and he should just burn it all now if there is no mercy. God gave them up. Free will has consequences. For God to give them up does not mean that he abandoned them. When we read the painful passages that come after this, what happens to people when they lose their humanity and become increasingly more driven by their sin and their desires in such a way that we had stopped talking about ourselves as people and we identify by whether or not we're wealthy or poor, our sexuality, our gender, in such a way that we deny what we are one in Christ? We must recognize hold on to, believe in faith that that is not God washing his hands of those people, standing back and saying, aha, there you go, I'm done with you. 
but saying, when you feel the weight of your own sin and your own futility, come to me, all who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. When you feel the weight of your sin, it is not because God has abandoned you. When God allows the world to see the weight of its rebellion against him, it is not because he plans on burning it. It's because he loves it enough to say, come back to me, all you who are heavy burdened, because my yoke is light and I am gentle and meek. So, a couple of questions to ask ourselves as we conclude this morning. Just to think through, what are the tendencies? How do I wrestle with this? First of all, when, when we as believers wrestle and look at a text like this, or many other texts, and we're trying to figure out whether or not our hearts are elsewhere, and therefore our reasoning may be becoming slightly confused, and therefore we may find ourselves quite apart from the basic rhythms and ethics of the kingdom of God, uh, what parts of the Bible do you most likely avoid? What parts do you find somewhat offensive or challenging? Are there places where you spend more time in the Bible and forget the other parts are there? Right? Sometimes you might ask, has E.C. ever read the New Testament? He just seems to talk about the prophets all the time. I, I, I like that I have a little bit. Um, I'm certainly not saying I'm above it. The question is, as therapeutic for me as it is for you? What passages, what parts of Scripture do we say, this is the God I like? This is the one I'm not so sure about. Does the passages do, do the passages you read, tend to reinforce your pre-existing cultural, social, ethical values? Has the Bible ever told you that you're wrong, aside from pornography? Secondly, what Bible verses do I use to argue against the Bible verses I find offensive or convicting? And this is kind of the illustration I gave of the, the Jesus, you know, two, two conversations. Isn't it my stuff? Go give everything away and follow me. Or uh, where we, like the tithe, right? Jesus says to the Pharisees who've gotten really super strict to the point where I was thinking about this this morning, It'd be like when I take my blueberries off my bush, right? The Pharisees are bringing 10% of their blueberry harvest to church every week to give to the rest. I mean, they were tithing down to their mint and their spices. They were super, super aggressive about making sure they had their 10% nailed. And Jesus is like, yeah, but your heart's not in it. So do the one, but don't forget the other. So we like that passage in Matthew 23, but then we'll run to Paul in Galatians and go, search your heart, figure out what you want to give. Do we put those, now I've been in classes where we actually fought about whether or not those texts counted each other out. I don't think they're designed to do that. There's probably a context for what Paul is saying, and there's a context for what Jesus is saying that probably both reinforces great scriptural truths and challenges people to stretch in new directions. So for yourself, do you find that you read one passage in Scripture and then you've got to go run to another passage to contradict that passage to make yourself feel better? Everybody does it. You're not alone. But do you recognize it? 
Question isn't whether or not you become a horrible sinner if you do that. What it is is a recognition that the human heart looks for comfort in certain parts of the world or in Scripture. And because our hearts are so tempted to love anything but Jesus, and it's sneaky that we may be tempted to then go find another part of Scripture that relieves the tension, relieves the expectation in a way that undermines the fullness of God's character and His kingdom. Scripture can sometimes be challenging. It can take our whole lives to figure out how to apply, but at its root, it is not contradictory. If our hearts tell us it's contradictory, it ain't coming from the Holy Spirit. If it challenges us that it'll take a lifetime of prayer to understand and embrace, then we're probably on the road to sanctification. We have a choice. I don't know how that works in the sovereignty of God, but we have been given the privilege to follow Christ. May we delight in knowing that we are free and in Christ free to choose him and choose life eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you give us the ability to, to wrestle with you, to wrestle with our own hearts. We pray that you would be faithful to us when our faith lags. We know you are. May we trust you. In Christ's name, amen.